Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Have you heard of the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting? Today we're going to talk about expectations. Expectations. We're talking about the rescuer. The rescuer is finally about to arrive. The time is right. Last Sunday, Steve talked about the rescuer, Jesus Christ, being the last Adam. The first Adam introduced sin into humanity. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, rescues humanity from the punishment and penalty of sin. Jesus Christ is our rescuer. Today we're talking about expectations. Let's jump right into the Gospel of Luke. If you have your copy of the Bible, you can also follow along on the screen. We want to be people who are in the Bible, who know the Bible, who love God's Word, who found our life upon the truth of God's Word. That's why it's one of our three core values, truth, the truth of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, let's start in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, this is Luke speaking, seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Let me clarify something. I used to think this as a kid. Would anybody be honest enough to admit this? I used to think that the 12 disciples started with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anybody else? Maybe you still think that. Let me me help you correct that for a moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. We refer to them as the Gospels, the good news of Jesus Christ, the life and times of Jesus. Mark and Luke were not original 12 disciples of Jesus. Mark is probably John Mark, who traveled with the Apostle Peter and recorded, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of Mark based on Peter's reflection of the life and time spent with Jesus. Luke is a doctor who traveled with the Apostle Paul, which they probably made a good pair because Paul was always getting hurt, wasn't he? He was always getting stoned, bitten by snakes and shipwrecked. So it was good that Luke was a doctor to be with him. So Luke compiles the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the start of the church, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and from the Apostle Paul in the travels. He says, following all things closely for some time. And because he's a doctor, you can expect that it's going to be an orderly account. It's a historical narrative. And he goes into much detail. He goes into far more detail than any of the other Gospels. This is the longest Gospel, the longest book in the New Testament. He talks about more details, he talks about more women, he talks about more Gentiles, he tells more parables, he tells more of the prayers of Jesus. It's a detailed book, a lengthy book, and it's a historical narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, those three years that he spent on earth. It starts with the first point in the narrative following the Old Testament. It's been 400 years since Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, and now we are starting the storyline of the, Old, the New Testament. This is where it starts. Luke's writing to a specific individual, Theophilus. Theos is God. Philos is the love between friends. So Theophilus means friend of God or a friend loved by God. 
Theophilus is probably a Christian. He's a Roman. He's steeped in Greek culture. And this is written with the purpose of, what does it say? There's a specific word I want to get, certainty. To write so that it would be certain the things that Theophilus had taught. And I wonder if he had grown a little skeptical and a little cynical over the years. You know when you first become a Christian, you got that fire burning, you're excited, you can't wait to get out and tell somebody, and then years go by and experience and maybe reality sets in and you kind of lose some of that expectation, some of that excitement, some of that fire kind of fades a little, if I could say that. Theophilus potentially had grown a little bit skeptical and cynical. I wonder if any of the Jewish traditionalists had stepped in and said, hey, you've got to follow the law. You've got to go back to the old covenant and follow these laws that we have set up. Maybe you need to be circumcised. And they were trying to draw him back and get him to follow the rules when what he had agreed to in the first place was grace through faith because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now Luke is writing so that he would have certainty of the things that were taught to him. My prayer today is that God would blow the lid off your expectations. That this little, this little framework of who we believe God to be, based on our life, our experience, our tradition, what we read from the Bible, this little frame that we have would just be blown apart. Let's, let's dig into our story here. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. We'll get some context. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But, there's always a but in the story, isn't there? There's a tension. Every good story starts with a tension. They had the perfect marriage until. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. Let's talk about this context. Throughout the last number of months, we've talked about Israel, the people of God, and they are constantly under oppression they are constantly enslaved to a group of people, right? It was the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians, it was the Medes and Persians. Now it's the Romans. Alexander the Great came in. He conquered the Medes and Persians. Now you have Koine Greek as the common trade language. You have all these road systems that have been built to Rome, all the way from Scotland down to Rome. Greece, Rome, is in control. The story really hasn't changed that much. They're still under oppression to Rome. They have their own government, but they're still oppressed, politically controlled, and taxed by Rome. The story really hasn't changed that much. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth have a great heritage. They both come from lineage and line of priests. The meaning of their names, Zechariah means God has remembered. Elizabeth means God has promised which is interesting once we dig into their story. Zechariah is a priest. He dedicated his life to being in the temple, praying for the people, sacrificing on behalf of the people. They were both righteous and walking blameless in commandments and statutes. They were faithfully sacrificing and trying to uphold the Old Covenant, the laws of the Old Testament, expectantly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. But Elizabeth was barren. 
You know, Luke is a doctor, the one who's recording these things through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And being a doctor, he uses a medical term. The Greek word for barren is stereos. And stereos, in case you don't know, means firm, fixed, established, unchanging, immovable, steadfast. How many people have had a doctor's report like that? It's not going to change. It's inoperable. There's nothing you can do. And I wonder how many times Zachariah and Elizabeth had thought that, said that, prayed that. It's not going to change for us. It's never going to change. How long have we prayed for this? How long have we wanted this? How many times have we tried? It's not going to change. I think of Zachariah as a priest at the temple. Tradition was on the eighth day they would bring the child to be dedicated at the temple. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks' time. I wonder how many children Zechariah had seen, how many children Zechariah had blessed as a priest, how many children that Zechariah had dedicated or sacrificed the dedication their parents had brought. He's supposed to pray for these children, but he can't have a child of his own. I wonder Elizabeth, as she's in the marketplace, or as she's meeting with other women, or as she's going about her daily duties, how many times women would say to her, you know, you'd look good with a little bundle under your arm. You shouldn't wait too long. Maybe someday you'll have one of your own. But the truth was, she was barren. It wasn't going to change. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, it's exactly how I feel. People tell me all the time, don't wait too long. You know, I, I, I get around people with other babies and people make the comment, you shouldn't wait too long. You'd look good with one of those. I just want to tell you that the truth in this story today is that God cares for the barren womb. That God sees the pain of the woman or the couple who can't have children. And praise God, this story, things do change. Because with God, all things are possible. Zachariah and Elizabeth were unable to conceive. Time had really run out. They're getting old now. And they had started losing hope, losing the expectations they had originally had for a life of parenting and, and marriage and seeing God's blessing. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, which was probably two weeks a year, how would you like a, a work schedule like that? Two weeks a year. Verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was likely a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. I love that. All these people gathered outside prayerfully, expectantly, anticipating that there would be an answer this time. Maybe this would be the day. Maybe this would be the day when God would institute his new covenant that he told us about in the Old Testament. Maybe this would be the day where God would initiate his rescue plan for mankind. Maybe this would be the day we would have some brand new news because it's been 400 years without any. There's still people prayerfully, expectantly waiting outside. They're waiting to see when God will do what he promised to do. The priests offered incense 
on the altar. This was Zechariah's duty this day. Incense symbolizes the people's prayers before God. As they would burn the incense, it was as if prayer and praise, a sweet-smelling cloud, would rise up to heaven. It was a picture of the people's prayers. When you read Exodus chapter 30, it talks about the altar of incense. You saw the kids' cartoon picture up there. It was the altar of incense. In the tabernacle, it was to be placed at the back of the holy place, which was in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple. This was as close as the average priest could get to the presence of God. You remember uh, how we preached on Solomon, the glory days, and how when he constructed and dedicated the temple, God's presence filled the temple. And the Jewish people believed God's presence sat between the cherubim, the mercy seat, um, the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence was there. The altar of incense symbolizing the prayers of the people was the priest standing, interceding before the people, before the presence of God. So the priest stood on behalf of the people before the presence of God, pleading and praying on their behalf. That's what our rescuer does for us. It's a picture of Jesus Christ standing on our behalf before God the Father, pleading our case as our advocate. Now the altar of incense. Jewish tradition tells us that there were three priests employed of the service of the altar of incense. Three priests would walk in at the same time. So you have Zechariah and you have two other priests. They would enter into the temple, into the holy place, the first room. They would walk past the table of showbread. They would show up at the altar of incense. The first priest was to clean out all of the chaff and all of the leftover bits of coal, all of the ash that would be left from the previous offering of incense. They did it twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. The first priest would go in and clean out all the leftovers from the previous offering of incense. The second priest would place the new hot coals on the altar. And then the third priest, who's Zechariah, would pour or place the incense on those burning coals, and he would begin to pray and intercede for the people. That's the picture. I don't know about you, but this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the coming of John the Baptist, the coming of Jesus Christ, the announcement to Mary, it's a pretty familiar story to me. If you've grown up in church services like this, if you've come out to Christmas services, you likely hear bits and pieces of this story. This is the part that stood out to me and grabbed my attention as something I hadn't really considered before. The altar of incense, the burning incense symbolizing prayer. Revelation chapter 5 says there was a bowl of incense that sat before him. It was the prayers of the saints, a sweet-smelling savor. We use a pellet stove for heat this winter. This is the first time we've used a pellet stove. I've had friends who have had pellet stoves and said they're super convenient. It's awesome, so much better than wood. I grew up with wood my whole life. Who burns wood for heat? You have a wood stove at home? Okay, great. Speaking to the right crowd. I remember cutting the wood with dad. I remember splitting it, stacking it. It's probably not going to be long. We're going to be doing it all over again. Stacking it in the backyard, stacking it in the basement, stacking it on the hearth, stacking it in the fire, doing it all over again, right? It's a big routine. But a pellet stove is really convenient because the pellets come in this nice, clean bag. There's no mess. There's really very little dirt. Very low maintenance. You take the pellets, they look like this. 
Somebody thought it was animal feed when I brought it in this morning, but these are wood pellets. You pour them in the top of the hopper. You just take your bag, pour it in the top of the hopper, which is a unit on top of the stove. There's an auger. This is all automated. You can set your temperature. It drags the appropriate amount of pellets into the burn tray, and it burns them, produces heat, heats your house. You don't have to touch it for 24 hours, which is awesome. Very low maintenance. The only maintenance you have to do is you have to clean out the ash from the burn tray after a burning cycle. When you go to start that fire again, you have to clean out the ash, or the leftover ash will affect the performance of the fire. And here's what the ash looks like. It's not coffee grinds, it's actually ash. I just got it this morning. But this is what it looks like. The fire goes from these wood pellets, which kind of look like rabbit food, and then they turn into this. And if you don't clean this out, anybody who burns a fire knows it's going to affect the performance of your fire, isn't it? If you burn with a wood stove and you never clean it out week after week and it gets to be a couple months, well, the ash builds up and builds up. It takes up the space. There's less heat. There's less draft. There's less performance. And there's a mess every time you open the door. You have to clean out that ash. I don't know if any of this is resonating or clicking with you. But I was thinking about those priests, how they offered on the altar of incense two times a day, which is normally when you check your wood stove, two times a day. Day after day, week after week, month after month, it's been 400 years. They're still doing it. And I would just think that their perspective would fall to this end of the prayer cycle. Wouldn't you? Like, have you ever sat around a campfire and, and, I don't know, maybe I'm just weird, but I sit around the campfire and I look at that orange and blue and white flame and I think, where does all that energy and that power come from? Because wood is just so boring, isn't it? Like, it doesn't move. It's got a weird smell, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of life to it. Just a stack of wood. It just sits there all season long. The sun dries it out. It cracks. Where does all that energy and that power come from? And then you get to the end of the cycle, and it's really lifeless, isn't it? Maybe, maybe that's your prayer life. You know, maybe, maybe when you first became a Christian, your hope and your expectancy and your dreams, like there was just an energy and a power and a heat there. And maybe over time, it's not been 400 years for you, but maybe over time, your prayer life starts to look like this. Kind of dead. Kind of hopeless. Just kind of a routine over and over again that you do. That you don't really expect much from this, do you? I think about those priests doing this over and over again. I think about Zachariah. He's going in there. This might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. And he sees those ashes scraped out. Like he's seen carried out of the temple a hundred, maybe thousands of times. Dumped out somewhere. That's kind of how my prayers have felt like. Elizabeth and I have been praying for a child year after year, decade after decade. Does God really hear our prayers? Do we really expect that God is going to answer after all these years? Or is it too late? The last thing Malachi said 
in the Old Testament was, Behold, the day is coming, burning hot like an oven. I love that. There's power there. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. I will send you one like the Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. There's expectancy, there's anticipation, there's excitement. The people are ready. Is this going to be the day? Is this going to be the day? A couple weeks go by, well, maybe this is going to be the day. A couple months go by, maybe this is going to be the day. Years go by, 400 years. Do we really think this is going to be the day? Do you ever feel like that in your Christian experience? Maybe you come into this place on Sunday and you sit down Do we really expect anything different this Sunday? I don't know. That resonated with me. Zachariah and Elizabeth, it's too late for us. God didn't do what we hoped he would do. God did not do what we expected him to do. My hands are covered in ash now. It's getting all over my paper. Their experience didn't meet their expectations. It fell short. And they interpreted that to mean God had fallen short. You know, there's this new song in the last 10 years, and the the bridge, I think it is, or the chorus, repeats over and over again, you're never going to let me down, never going to let me down. I remember having a conversation with a friend whose child had walked away from the Lord, had gotten into drugs, um, had little to no hope of their return. And I remember having a conversation with her thinking, she, she said, I, I can't sing that song because it's not true. God did let me down. He let me down in a big way. I'm reminded of it every day. Does God ever fail to fit your expectations? Does God ever fail to fit in that box of what you expect your Christian life and your heavenly father to do for you? I think if we'd be honest, most of us would say yes. I've prayed for years for God to do something, to answer something, to change something in my life. I've pleaded with God three times to remove this thorn, but yet his answer wasn't what I had expected or hoped for. I want to share with you a verse from Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 12. I'm reading through Proverbs this year, and and this verse keeps sticking out to me. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Let's focus on that first part. When you're hopeful, when you're anticipating and expecting something, you go to the mailbox and you check and it's not there. And you go to the fridge and you open the door and it's never there. And you go to the gym and it's not there and you stand on the scale and, well, it's not there. And you go to the doctor's office and get the report and, well, it's not there. And you check your dating app and it's not there. You check your real estate app and it's not there. You check your pregnancy test and it's not there. How long does it take before you interpret God through the lens of your failed expectations? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you know, this is something that culture is starting to catch up to the word of God on. 
There are multiple TED Talks and different intellectual conversations on how setting expectations, having goals and hopes and dreams, is actually hazardous to your mental health. Because if you never reach your dream, then you interpret the rest of life through your failed expectations. But then they point you to the destiny of the universe or something like that. What I want to point you to is what Jesus said. I think Jesus summed it up well. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Can I, can I squeeze this whole conversation into that one sentence? Can I do that? I think this frames it up perfectly, if I could say that. Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, pleading, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to face separation from God the Father in his humanity. And then he responds with, not my will, not what I want, not what I expect or wish for, but your will be done. We can't base our expectations on our experience of what we had hoped God would do or not do in our life. If what you want isn't what God wants for you, you'll be sick. If you spend your whole life chasing after what you want, but never lining it up with what God wants for you, it's going to make you sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Zechariah is about to find out just how personal God's power can be. And the silence is about to end. After 400 years, God is doing a new thing and the rescuer is here. Now's the time. Luke chapter 1 and verse 11. Zechariah is in the temple. He's offering the incense on the altar. He's interceding on behalf of the people who are waiting outside before the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, just on the other side of the veil. Verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. I bet he didn't expect that. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, which means God has been gracious. I love that. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, and in the spirit and power of Elijah, that's Malachi chapter 4, what the Old Testament ended with, the New Testament begins with, God's keeping his promise to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you know what I wish I could preach this morning? I wrote this in my notes when I was first going through this as an observation. I wanted to be able to say, you're just one prayer away. Wouldn't that be good? Just keep on praying. You are one prayer away. If Zechariah hadn't prayed that day, would this have happened? You're just one prayer away. Just, if you would just pray bigger prayers, God's going to come through for you. Maybe you've gotten that impression. Maybe you've thought, 
and jumped into this idea that if I believe, I will achieve. Doesn't that sound good? If you believe it enough, the world says it this way, if you want it bad enough. <laughs> but that's not the case, is it? That's not the case. John was to take the Nazarite vow. No wine, no strong drink, potentially no haircut. You might remember Samson from the Old Testament. No haircut would fit in John the Baptist's uh, persona and what he looked like coming out of the wilderness, dressed in camel's hair and all that crazy stuff, eating locusts. But what it really means is that John would be separated unto the Lord. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah? They were barren. They couldn't have kids. They're almost 100 years of age. God has promised it. Then God comes through. Sarah laughed. Isaac's name means laughter. You know what God did? He said, Abraham, take your son up on the hill. We're going to make a sacrifice. And God tested Abraham's faith, being willing to give up his son that God had gifted him with. You remember Hannah? Hannah was barren. She prayed for a son. She was pleading in the temple. The priest thought she was drunk because she was so emotional in her prayer, pleading for a son. Finally, God gave her Samuel. You know what she did with Samuel? She gave Samuel back to God. And Samuel lived in the temple from a young age. What I believe the underlining theme here in this Nazarite vow is, and it's clarified with the last verse in this chapter that John lived in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, is that God was requesting what he had blessed them with. Kind of like how we talked about in the book of Malachi two weeks ago. God was asking back what he had blessed them miraculously with. Nazarite vow, you will separate him unto me. Not my will, but yours be done. God is helping them to see that their deepest desire needed to be for God first. You can have all the desires in the world. You need to have dreams. You need to have expectations. You need to have goals. But the underlying foundation of all of them needs to be a desire for God first. Not my will, but your will be done. We would be foolish to go through this life with no expectation, no goals, no hopes, no dreams, no anticipation of anything. But it all needs to be built on God first. Not my will, but yours be done. Zechariah is just dumbstruck by this whole thing. Luke 1.18, look at what he says. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Men, that's called walking on thin ice. He didn't say old. He said advanced in years. But he's still talking about his wife's age. Verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. You'll remember that name from the Christmas story. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah questioned Gabriel with the same disbelief and lack of expectancy that Sarah had when she laughed at the angel's news that she would have a son. He didn't believe it. 
And now he's speechless. Let's keep moving on. Verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah. You remember all those people praying out in front of the temple. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now that's a man. He doesn't go get checked by the doctor. He finishes his service, right? He sticks it out. 400 years of silence. That's what we refer to it as, the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years of silence, and the only one with new news is silent. I like that. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, because God always keeps his word. For five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now I'm trying to step into Zachariah's shoes here and feel some of the emotion and the circumstances that he's under. And I hope you realize that the people we talk about in the Bible, the characters we're reading about, were real people with real thoughts and emotions and motives. And when you try and remove the emotional aspect of Scripture out of it, it breaks up the story. You need to have it there. What is Zechariah thinking and feeling during this time and not able to speak? And I guarantee they didn't have post-its back then where he could just scribble his thoughts and show it and scribble his thoughts and show it. I don't know what he was writing on. Vellum? Calfskin? Was he etching it into a stone? Like, it would not be easy to spread the news of what you saw. I wonder if God was just tapping him on the shoulder and saying, Zechariah, you've prayed for so long, and now you've kind of lost, lost faith and lost belief. I wonder if he's tapping him on the shoulder and saying, just shut your mouth for a little bit and just watch what I'm going to do. I wonder if he's saying, just be still and know that I'm God. Just sit back and just watch my power unfold and the plans and purposes. Do you remember Habakkuk? Habakkuk said, God, what are you doing? Why do the evil people prosper? And God says, if I told you, it would blow your mind. If you really knew what God was doing behind the scenes, you wouldn't be able to speak either. Then the story switches scenes. God's on the move. I hope you believe God is moving today. He's not some distant, deistic thought that just kind of set creation into motion. Now he's standing back watching us all fail. He is involved. He is moving. He is working. His plan's unfolding. But not only were Zachariah and Elizabeth now expecting, but over in Nazareth, Gabriel appeared to Mary. Mary's a young Jewish woman who's engaged to Joseph. She's a virgin. So she has even less reason to expect to be expecting. And Gabriel shows up and he says, the power of the Most High overshadowed you. He talks about Jesus. You will conceive a son, call his name Jesus, son of the Most High, throne of David, reigning over a kingdom that has no end. How long do you think Gabriel had waited to give that message? Do you think he was just up in heaven like, it's now the time, God? Can I go tell them now? Can I go tell them now? 
And now not only were Zachariah and Elizabeth expecting, Mary was expecting too. We're going to talk about that next week. Luke 1, verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. I love that. She was called barren. What the doctors said would never change. God changed because the next verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. You know, maybe you're thinking, the reason why I have such small expectations is because I don't want to be failed again. I don't want to be disappointed again, so I'm just going to set my expectations low. But the truth is, you, you can't set your expectations too high for God. You can never raise the bar high enough because with God, nothing is impossible. He can exceed any limitation that we place on him in our expectations. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I love her answer. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let me say that another way. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. When you're expecting, you tend to spend time with people who are expecting, right? I've seen this with pregnant ladies. They seem to congregate, don't they? They're kind of drawn to each other. But when you're expecting big things from God, you need to surround yourself with people who are also expecting big things from a big God. That's community. You need to spend time with people who are expecting and anticipating and believing and hoping God for big things. That's why we come into this place on a celebration Sunday, isn't it? To be together with people who believe in a God who sent the rescuer Jesus Christ to change the story forever. We are expecting and we are anticipating in a big God. Watch what Mary does. Luke chapter 1 verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. Do you see the expectancy, the anticipation? Into the hill country to a town of Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah. And it almost seems like she didn't speak to him. She greeted Elizabeth. Maybe it's because he couldn't speak. There's nothing recorded. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Six months pregnant, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, because God always does what he says he's going to do. Two pregnant ladies, two expectant mothers, a lot of hormones, a lot of emotions, but there's expectancy and excitement, anticipation. They're waiting to see what God was going to do. Elizabeth's womb jumped for joy. The expectancy is building because they are believing God's promises and awaiting what he is going to do expectantly. There's so much excitement and joy that Mary breaks into song. She sings this full, beautiful song. I'm just going to give you one line. Luke 1:49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. That's the song that the band played earlier in this service. He has done great things for me. Our expectation of God needs to be rooted in who he is before we can then interpret what he does. Because sometimes we come into Sunday and we praise God for what he's done in our life. 
And then other weeks we come into a Sunday service and, well, what has God done in my life? We can't base our expectations on our experience of what we perceive God to do and not to do. We need to base our expectations on who God is, his character, his attributes. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And then look at verse 56. Mary remained with her about three months. Three plus six is nine months. She's at full term. And then Mary returned home. So Elizabeth is at full term. It's time. It's been 40 weeks. Zachariah has been silent for 40 weeks. Not unlike God seemingly being silent for 400 years. Luke 1.57 Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. They rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called his name Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. God is gracious. Verse 61. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Probably wasn't an iPad. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. They were all dumbstruck. Verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed for the first time in nine months. And he spoke, blessing God. Verse 65. Fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them laid up in their hearts the saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. Do you see how expectation builds expectation? The excitement around the moment is building. Faith is building faith. We need to have a culture of expectation. If we have this defeatist attitude that, you know what, we're just going to try this another time, and every other time we tried it, it didn't do anything, so we're not expecting very much this time because we've already prayed that prayer, and we've already asked God for that, and so why bother? But instead, we need to have an atmosphere of expectation where we believe God is at work, and he is doing something. Do you believe that? We need to wake up each morning and pray prayers of expectancy that God, this is your day. I'm your servant. Not your will, but mine be done. I believe that you're going before me. I believe that you are working in people's hearts and lives. I believe you are doing something this day. We need to have a faith of expectation that we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and that we are building his kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We expect that God is at work. We need to have evangelism of expectancy that when we plant a seed and when we water a seed, that God is actually going to give the increase. We need to believe that when we give his word, it's not going to return void, but it's going to accomplish what it says it will do. We need to have expectancy that God is actually at work and he's actually doing something today. If we don't have a culture of expectation, then what do we have? If we just come into this place Sunday after Sunday and we just sing the same songs and we pray the same prayers and it's dead and lifeless and there's no faith and hope and expectation, anticipation that God is actually going to work and he's actually on the move, what are we doing? 
John's ministry would be to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer. Do you see how God is already preparing hearts? He's already lining things up. I mean, just think about the Roman oppression. Just think about how there's pretty much a one-world trade language right now. Just think about how this road system literally has been paved across the ancient world. And this is the time that John the Baptist would come to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. God's plan at work. What, what if we had a buzz and an atmosphere like that? What if we truly believed that God was at work? You can't get your expectations high enough. I hope you realize that. That we have, we have this thought of what we want God to do in our life. But yet God has this plan at work in creation. We've got to flip the script, if I could say that. Instead of viewing God through our expectations of what he should be doing, who he should be, the time and the place and the thing that we want in this life, we need to flip the script so that we are living through God's expectations and according to his plan. And instead of seeing God as fitting into our plan and our life and our timeline, instead we need to see ourselves as fitting into God's plan and his timeline and what he is at work and doing in the world. You see how the perspective flips? You've got to frame it up. We've got to take this little picture of what we believe God to be and just take the lid off. You know what Zechariah does? He can finally speak. He prophesies. The Holy Spirit, power of the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He prophesies, and it's basically listing out God's plan of redemption. What I believe is that Zachariah has finally come to the realization and the framework that it's not my plan I'm asking God to produce for me, but it's God's plan that I get to be a little cog in the wheel of. And then his son John is in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance and ministry. And that's what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. Are you excited for this series? Do you expect God to do something in your life today, this week, according to his plan and his will? Man, I hope we can stop praying prayers like this, clean out this, throw it in the backyard somewhere after it cools down, and then replace it with the heat and energy and expectancy and anticipation of God's power and his spirit. Let's close this time in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you so much for who you are and for what you've done for us. God, we thank you that you are a good father, that you are merciful and gracious, that you are all loving, that you are all wise and knowing, that you are righteous, that you are just. God, we pray that we would view the circumstances of our life through that lens. God, I don't know what life has taken each one of these folks through, but I know they have experienced and tradition, and memories, and pains, and sufferings attached to their story. God, I pray that instead of viewing you, and having expectations on you based on that experience, that instead they would turn around and look at their life through the lens of who you are, and what you want to accomplish in this world, through the sending of your son, the rescuer of humanity. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen.